introduction is a good segue into the topic of humility. You know, humility is a funny virtue, isn't it? Because if I say I have humility, I probably don't, right? So if I stood up here and I said, welcome to Emmaus Road, I have good news for you. I've mastered the topic of humility, and I'm here to share with you the three ways that I've gained humility, and I can share that with you. You'd probably say, David, I'm not sure you understand the definition of that word. I'm not sure you know what you're saying, humility. Because definitions, they matter, don't they? Definitions matter. I have a friend who's a professor at the University of Tennessee, and he teaches painting. And he's one of the people, you know those friends that you have that's a lot cooler than you? Like cooler than all of us in this room? They know something, you know, if they like it, then you're going to like it in like three years. You'll catch up to them in that. So he's that, that type of person. And he also happens to be a vegetarian. Now my friend has a son, and at this time of the story that I'm telling, he was about six years old, and his son's name is Gali. And Gali's hero is his dad, who's the professor. He's his hero. And so Gali had this phrase that he would say to people when he would go up to them. He would say, hi, I'm Gali. I'm a vegetarian, but I love chicken tenders. I love chicken tenders. And it's funny, right? Because you know the definition of being a vegetarian is that you don't eat meat. It's a contradiction in terms, you might say, golly, you need to know that there's a boundary here in terms of if you're going to define yourself as a vegetarian, then you don't like chicken tenders. Well, we live in a world of gollies, don't we? We live in a world that loves to say something and do something else, loves to say, yes, I'm this, but I like to kind of pick and choose with these things, and yeah, a couple of these, but not those, especially in the realm of religion, Right? I'm, again, Dan mentioned I'm, I teach at, at universities and my students are like that a lot. Love the Bible, great book, but not so much, you know, what the, that Jesus thing and, and, and that chapter and miracles and what about Noah and creation, but yes, definitely like the Bible. I'm a Christian. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe in your own life, you, you feel this tension in your heart of who you know you should be and who you are. You know, I want to be, be this person, but I know that I do this. Or I, I've set out to be this type of mom, or this type of dad, or this type of son, or this type of boyfriend, girlfriend. I know I want to be this, but I know I'm this. And we feel that tension in our hearts. And I think maybe one of the biggest ways for us that definitions matter in these things is how we define greatness, or how we define the good life. We all have our own working definition of the good life. What does it mean for me to be a good mom? What does it mean for me to achieve what I want to achieve? We all have that definition in our heads. And in our text today, Jesus intersects us in all of our inconsistencies, and all of our definitions. Jesus comes in, and I'm going to argue this today, that perhaps nowhere is the contrast greater between Jesus and the world than in this definition of greatness. Perhaps nowhere is the contrast clearer than how Jesus defines greatness and how the world defines greatness. Or maybe how you this morning might be defining greatness for you and how you live your life and what it means to have the good life. So if you catch one big truth, if it was a a late night for you last night, if you know sermons can go a little bit longer than you like, if you catch one thing, it's this. We must let Jesus reshape our definition 
of greatness. We must let Jesus reshape our definition of greatness. We're going to see three ways that Jesus wants to do that for us this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to read God's word together. God, we thank you for bringing us here this morning, no matter where we are. I thank you, God, that you have something specific to speak to us, no matter where we are this morning. And I thank you that your word speaks truthfully to us, that you never lead us astray. We can trust you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us this morning. So if you see in your worship guide here, we have the sermon uh, in Mark chapter 9. And if you have your Bible, you can open there as well. And I'm going to start reading in verse 30, and then we'll get to your uh, printing there. So this is Jesus in Mark chapter 9. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not ask, they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now we're getting to our text here. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. He who has ears, let them hear. Amen. So, our context, let's talk about the context of this passage and then who's writing this book. It tells us, right, doesn't it? It says, he's in Capernaum. Now, in case, in case you don't know a whole lot about the history of the Bible, Capernaum's a real place, okay? You can go there today. You can visit, I think it's like a $1.50 entry fee. Um, a certain denomination that I won't mention owns the, you know, the town around there in the Sea of Galilee. So you can go there today. I've been there. Um, and where this takes place in the house, the other Gospels tell us it's Peter's house, okay? And we have pretty good archaeological evidence of where Peter's house actually is. And if you want to know why, you can come to me up afterwards. But you can go there today. So take it out of your kind of, here's Jesus and no particular time or place, throwing out these pithy sayings. No, this is a historic time, first century Palestine. Jesus is there in Capernaum. And uh, our writer, Mark, in case you think, okay, if I open up the Bible, I'm going to have a whole bunch of good people telling me how bad I am. Okay, maybe that's your, your thought of what the Bible is. Well, Mark knows better than that. Because two of the main places that our writer of this gospel comes into the story, Mark fails. Okay? Mark in his own gospel only enters once. And he's described as someone when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus, and Mark was following him. And it says, and a man was wearing only his cloak, and he runs away. He's so scared, he runs away naked. Okay? So Mark's the naked guy. Great description of himself in his own book. And then he comes up in the, in the book of Acts, describing the Acts of the Apostles. And Mark's the one who abandons Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas fight over whether or not Mark is going to be consistent enough to be part of this journey with them. And then Mark gets to write some of the history of what happens to Jesus. So maybe you're feeling like, okay, 
I'm a failure. You're talking about humility and you know, greatness and all these things. That's not me. Well, Mark can relate to you this morning. Those are two of the main ways that he's described in his own, uh, in his own gospel and also in the book of Acts. So in Mark's gospel, when we see a household scene, we're almost always going to see Jesus explaining something to his disciples that the crowds couldn't know. Okay, so we enter the house at Capernaum. And if you're a perceptive reader, you might laugh a little bit to yourself on what we just read. You might chuckle, right? Because Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to give you new life. And right after that, what do we see in our text? And they argued about who was the greatest. So Jesus just says, I'm going to serve. I'm going to lay down my life. This is what it means to be a follower of me. And they say, hey, are you greater or am I greater? Because I'm pretty sure it's me. I'm pretty sure I'm greater than you. It's funny. It should make us chuckle if you're a perceptive reader. They totally miss Jesus' definition of greatness. So the first thing Jesus wants to do to us so that we don't miss it either, the first point here is that Jesus wants to replace our mirror lenses. I'll explain what I mean by that. I don't know if you knew this. Trust me, I'm a doctor. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> but all of us are born, all of us are born with lenses on our eyes, okay? Some of you might have contact lenses. You understand this more than others. But all of us are born with lenses, metaphorically, okay? I'm not a real doctor, but um, <laughs> lenses on our eyes. And they're not transparent that we can see out, but they're mirrors, okay? Let me give you an example. I have two little nephews, and uh, one of them is named Judah, he's about three, and the other one is Titus, he's, he's about one. What's the favorite toy of Judah on any giving, given morning? What's the favorite toy? It's whatever toy his brother has, right? It doesn't matter. If it's the blue block, if Titus has the blue block, it's the blue block. It's not the green one, it's not the pink one, it's not the purple one, it's the one that Titus has, right? Now, who taught him that? It just comes with the territory, right? If you're a kid, your favorite toy is the one that somebody else is playing with. Growing up, one of the biggest fights was who got to sit shotgun. My brother's here this morning. Who got to sit shotgun? We always had to divide up. No, it was my turn last time. Now it's your turn, right? Nobody's saying, I call the middle seat scrunched in the middle in the back. That's my seat. I want to be last. No kid's saying that, right? Because we want to be first. You want to be shotgun. Nobody taught us that, but we're born that way. And I, we, we laugh, but... We're all born, and it continues until Jesus intervenes in our life, that we look out into the world, and we see our wants, our desires, our definition of what a good life is, and that's how we see the world. Right? When we walk into a room, we look for the people that we like, that we want to sit with, the people who make us feel good. We look out, and we see ourselves. Now, how did the disciples miss Jesus' definition of greatness? Did you notice that? Did you catch that? Why did they miss it? It says in verse 32, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So the disciples didn't understand and Jesus is there and they didn't ask him. I want to ask this question to us this morning. Have you ever asked Jesus? Jesus, what's your definition of greatness? Jesus, here's my life. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a student. What does it look like for my life to be pleasing to you? What does it look like for my life to matter in your kingdom? Because the disciples didn't ask Jesus, and they missed it. The disciples didn't ask. I want to ask that question to us this morning. Have you ever asked Jesus, what does that look like for my life?
The disciples obviously had a budding understanding that what they were doing and asking wasn't exactly right. Right? Look at verse uh, 33 or 34. But they kept silent. When Jesus says, what were you talking about on the road? Now, Jesus isn't asking for information because the other Gospels tell us he knew their thoughts, it says. So he says, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's a silent confession, right? Otherwise, they'd be like, I was actually just saying to James that I was greater than he was. Instead, they remain silent. They're so focused on themselves. They're so focused on looking out and seeing, am I going to be greater than that person or that person? Comparison. They're so focused on the arrows of their life pointing in. And Jesus wants to slowly take those arrows arrows and bend them outward to others for an others-centered life. What would it look like if we said, Jesus, will you shatter those lenses that I have when I look out in the world that I see myself? My life's about me. My life's about pursuing my wants, my dreams, my goals. Jesus, what does that look like? The definition of greatness in your eyes. Now maybe you're like me and you feel that tension in your heart. Right? You feel that tension. I think we also see that in literature that we read as well. I was just living in Edinburgh, Scotland for four years. Great to be back in America, I tell you what. Especially Wisconsin. But there's a famous writer, 19th century writer named Robert Louis Stevenson. Have you ever read Tre- Treasure Island or his famous book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? And he has this great description in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where Dr. Jekyll describes this tension that we feel in our lives. So listen to this quotation from his book. It's a little longer, so stick with me. Dr. Jekyll says, You know yourself, you know yourself how earnestly in the last months of last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others and that the days passed quietly, almost happily for myself. Nor can I truly say that I wearied of this beneficent and innocent life. I think instead that I daily enjoyed it more completely. But I was still cursed with my duality of purpose. And as the first edge of my penitence wore off, the lower side of me, so long indulged, so recently chained down, began to growl for license." It was a fine, clear January day, and the Regent's Park was full of winter chirpings and the sweet and sweet with spring odors, like today. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then, as in its turn, the faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I looked down. My clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs, The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was, once more, Edward Hyde. Did you hear that tension that he felt in his heart? He compared himself to his neighbors. I'm doing okay. I'm feeling good. I've chained these things down. But he felt a duality of purpose. And of course, this is an extreme example. But it defines our human condition so well. 
Even when we try to pursue good things and be good and be the person that we want to be, ultimately we fail in our own strength because of a human condition that Robert Louis Stevenson defines so well. Okay, David, you got me. Sad news, let's all go home. Let's all feel bad about ourselves, right? Good news, there's more points. So first point is Jesus wants to shatter our, shatter our mirror lenses that we see in ourselves. But then Jesus doesn't leave us by ourselves. He wants to replace our definition. That's point two. He wants to replace our definition. Just like in our culture, everything in first century Greco-Roman culture fought against this idea of serving others or putting others first. Plato said this, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Okay, interesting. That's Greco-Roman culture. Why would I serve when I can be served? And that's what the disciples are thinking as well. Their culture promoted a self-focused definition and so does ours, right? When you think of somebody who made it, what do we think of when we think of someone who made it? They made it. I don't know about you, but first thing I think of, maybe a billionaire, maybe Bill Gates, maybe a huge house, maybe a lake house. Do I think of someone who's serving somebody else, who's being second? Well, we think of that too in our culture, so culturally conditioned to say, that person made it, that's greatness. Not an others-centered life, but a self-focused life, right? Do you notice that Jesus doesn't say, don't pursue greatness, though? Jesus doesn't say that, does he? What does he say in the text? He says, If you would be great, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So Jesus isn't saying, say no to greatness and come follow me. He's saying greatness is not what you thought it was. Greatness is not yourself getting ahead, but this focus on others for the sake of God. And we'll get more to that in a second. So the challenge is not not to be great, but to be great in the things that matter to God, right? The challenge is not about not being great, but being great in the things that matter to God. To, and the things that are close to the heart of God, and we'll see later in our passage, are the poor, the broken, the hurting, the rejected, the downtrodden. To love those people is to love God himself. He's rearranging how we view this idea of greatness. Now imagine this scenario. Imagine you're with me at a party, having a good time, and you and I, we start talking about the Facebook timeline, okay? A little bit confusing. It's been controversial in the news about how things are put on the timeline. It's a complex algorithm. And I start explaining to you, you know, let me just kind of explain a little bit of this algorithm here. You know, if you like something, it has a little bit more of a probability of, and as right as I'm explaining to that to you, Mark Zuckerberg steps in. He says, excuse me, can I just step in? He sounds actually just like that. Can I step in here and explain to you that the algorithm? Now, what's my proper response? He's got his hoodie on. He's the founder and owner of Facebook. What's my proper response if I'm trying to explain the algorithm? Excuse me, Mark, I'm just trying to explain this Facebook thing. If you just like step to the side, I'm trying to explain this. No, the proper response is to say, oh, founder, the one who defined Facebook, explain to us, how how does this Facebook timeline work? How did you, you know, how did you design it? What is it, what does that mean? Of course, in a similar way, Jesus is intersecting our lives and he's saying, for you, This is what matters to me, and this is what you were made for. You were made to serve me, to be in relationship with me, and to invest in things that will last. 
Because God loves you more than to leave you in your own definition of greatness. God loves you so much more than to just leave you on your own devices. So we should, what's our proper response to say, okay, Jesus, asking that question, what does it mean to be great in your eyes? Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. Well, the disciples, they're speaking about fulfilling theirs. The disciples had a lot of ambition, but not ambition for the things that mattered to God. In reality, the ambitions of the twelve, they imperiled their following and fellowship with Jesus. Their ambitions imperiled their following and their fellowship of Jesus. Because this reality is true. At some point, your self-definition of greatness and Jesus' definition of greatness, they cannot coexist. They will crash into one another. Jesus wants to exchange it. He wants to offer you that good life that he has for you, defined by him, empowered by him, in the kingdom of God. So that's point number two, that Jesus wants to replace that definition that we have. Break our lenses and then replace our definition so we can see it. And then three, in order to do that, Jesus wants us to step off of center stage in our lives so we can live this definition of greatness. Let's go back to our text for a second. Jesus gives them a living parable to explain it. What does this great life mean? Because we haven't really defined it yet, have we? Verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now what does that mean? The disciples and Jesus were undoubtedly speaking in the language Aramaic to each other. And what they would have noticed, what we don't notice, is that the word for child and the word for servant are the same word. The word talia. So they would have seen that kind of play on words that Jesus is saying. Someone who's lowly, someone who's rejected, someone who's overlooked. Because if you're in a subsistence society, like first century Greco-Rome, children are not that valuable. I'm so sorry. But in our world, we, we dote on our kids, and we listen to them, and we ask them questions, and we, that kind of investment, that's not a subsistence society. The, the, uh, the book, the Mishnah, which is a Jewish scripture, described children as those who have not yet arrived. Right? That's children, because you, they're not doing us much good to survive at that point, and they're overlooked, and Jesus brings them into the center of the room, and he says, you probably didn't even notice this child here. You want to be great? Love this one. But not just love this one, not just be nice, and you'll be good. What does he say? In my name. In my name. Then you'll be receiving God, and then you'll be making God famous. It's about investing in the things that matter and the things that last. God lasts. God wor- God's word lasts. People last, right? God loves people. And he especially identifies with those who are hurting and those who are broken and those who are rejected. And to reject those people 
is to reject Jesus. He so identifies with the hurting and the downtrodden that to reject those people is to reject Jesus himself. Heavy. If we love them in his name, then we're loving him. And just very briefly, how, how do we do this? What are some of the ways? We mentioned refugees. There's people in this church who are loving refugees. What a message to a culture that says these people are worthless. And the people of God say, I love that person. I serve that person. I welcome them in Jesus' name. What a message. And there are people here who probably say, whoa, that doesn't fit. Wow, Jesus loves those people. He loves the hurting. He loves the downtrodden. I have a friend who, when her husband, uh, I have a family member, when her husband is busy, what happens to her schedule? It's filled up with people who are lonely, who are, who are single and hurting. It's, it's filled up with widows. That's, that's what it looks like for her to love people who are rejected. I have a friend who's a surgeon, loves to do medical missions, use his gifts to, to heal people in Jesus' name. It's small things. I have friends who love to serve their wives. They know that that person next to them is a person who they need to be last to in order to love like Jesus. A friend who's studying education who wants to teach in an urban school to love underprivileged kids in Jesus' name. There's another example. And you might just think of moms in general, and I think that's right with this passage, a kid brought into the center. If you're a, missional, if you're a mom who's missional, what a ministry. What a ministry. And Jesus would have that in mind as well. And I think for some of us, and this hits me so clearly, it's so much easier just to drive into the driveway, go into our garage, and shut the door, isn't it? Than to, to go out and talk to our neighbors, to ask them how their lives are. People in our community are so hurting. They need Jesus. Talk to them, love them. It's so much easier just to go to our mailbox and hope that nobody saw us and walk into our house, right? Because we're busy and we're tired. But people need Jesus, and one of the number one ways we can do that is to give them Christ, to say, here's the one who loves you, cares for you, wants a relationship with, with you. Let's conclude by going back to our text. This text this morning doesn't just happen in an island, but it's one of three places that Jesus predicts his death in the Gospel of Mark, and this is how I'm going to conclude. The first time he does so in Mark 8, 31 And he says, I'm going to go to the cross. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. What happens after that? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Okay, so Jesus predicts his death. Peter says, you're never going to go to the cross. I'm going to stop you. Then we get to our passage. Jesus predicts his death. What do the disciples do? Am I greater than you? Because I think I am greater than you. Discipleship failure again. And then Jesus does that again. He predicts his death in chapter 10. And what happens after that? James and John in verse 35 say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. I want to be first. Prediction, discipleship failure. Predicting his death, discipleship failure. Predicting his death, discipleship failure. If you're feeling this morning, like living an other-centered life, you're a failure. You just can't do it. You're in good company. When Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my life, 
I want to serve you. I want to give you new life in me that is this life in the kingdom of God, investing in people who are broken and hurting and downtrodden. The disciples fail. Mark fails. Peter fails. What changes? Pentecost, right? We come to Pentecost Sunday and God intervenes and sends his Holy Spirit and says, you're not these things, but I am. And he gives them his Holy Spirit. They surrender their lives to Jesus and say, your life, not mine. And then they go and they preach the gospel to the hurting, to the downtrodden, they heal the sick and they serve boldly and they all die for their faith because they're empowered by the Spirit. So, maybe for some of us this morning, maybe this is intermission. The first act has been about us. The first act has been about me and my wants and my desires, looking out into the world and seeing myself. The good news is there is a second act. And Jesus wants to be on center stage for you. Jesus wants to take the lead role in your life. And you can step back and say, God, I want you to be at the center. I want you to be at the front of my life. And I want to love those who are hurting in your name. Then the world can see what you are all about. Nowhere is this contrast greater between Jesus and the world than how we define what the good life is. And Jesus wants to define that for you and he wants to define that for me. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We need your help to love like you. And we thank you that you do intervene in your Holy Spirit. Ask for each and every one of us this morning that we might surrender our lives to you, that you could make us new, to love like you in this broken world and so that you will be famous in our community here in Appleton and Fox Valley in Wisconsin and to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.